0: alrighty church if you have your Bibles let's open those up to first Thessalonians please first Thessalonians we're gonna be looking at chapter one this morning um, and I wanted to give a little bit of insight into the path that we've been taking for the last five years alright so you may think that the stuff that I pick to to go through the books that we study are done at random which is not the case there is rhyme to my reason or reason to my rhyme We started off the very first book that we went through when I came here was the book of Ephesians, and what the book of Ephesians does is it tells us who the church is. It gives us a good solid eschatol or not eschatology, ecclesiology, a a good study of who the church is supposed to be, and it shows us very practically how we should live our lives out as the church. After that, we went to Nehemiah, and in Nehemiah, this is the the people of God had been sent out into exile and they had come back to Jerusalem and Jerusalem needed to be rebuilt and so we're in a rebuilding phase of this church and so I thought this would be a good thing to study as we are in the process of trying to build this church back to what it once was and then after that we went from Nehemiah to the book of Matthew we took some breaks in between for Psalms and such like that but Uh, After that, the next book we studied was the book of Matthew, and and to to build up the church, one of the things that we have to do is we have to have a solid foundation of who Jesus is, and so to do that, I wanted to go through uh, one of the Gospels, and Matthew is my favorite gospel. I love the way that it ties into the Old Testament, continually points back to who Jesus is from the Old Testament, and there we learned about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can't be a good, solid church if we don't have a good, solid understanding of the gospel. After that, we went into the book of Acts. Typically, I jump back and forth between an old, a New Testament book to an Old Testament book, uh, but this time I wanted to continue on with this idea of who the church is that after it had been established by Christ. And so, the book of Acts, we spent time there seeing how we should respond to the gospel and the Great Commission. Uh, that Jesus gave to his disciples at the end of Matthew. If you remember at the end it says go forth to all nations, make disciples uh, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. And so we should be as God's disciples, we should be taking this message to the ends of the earth as that we see the apostles and uh, the believers did throughout the book of Acts. Right, So we see there that the church grew. We see there that persecution happened. And what that did was it caused kind of a a shotgun blast out into the world. And we see the gospel going forth and it overcoming darkness in many different places in the world. After this, we didn't go into another book. We instead went to the seven churches of Revelation. I wanted to see how the church was doing. This was about 30 years after the book of Acts had ended. And I wanted to do a health check on these churches, and several of those churches weren't doing well. I think there were two out of the seven that got commendations from the Lord. Everyone else uh, was rebuked by the Lord, and the reason for that is because they had gotten caught up in the things of the world. They had started taking their eyes off of the kingdom of God and they had started looking at the things of the world. And because of that, their effectiveness as the church had decreased. They started to dwindle in numbers. They started to go back into some of their pagan practices. And so after we got done with that, I went to look at Ecclesiastes. Right? We, start, we finish that right before uh, Advent this year. Ecclesiastes talks about the dangers of being caught up in the world. Right? We see how the churches had fallen, fallen off because they were caught up in the world, and Ecclesiastes talks about the dangers of that, and it very clearly expresses the emptiness that the things of the world have to offer us. Right? Solomon had everything that you could ever possibly want. I mean there was nothing in this life that he denied himself and yet none of it offered him lasting joy or fulfillment because we're not made for this stuff. Right? These things are good and gracious gifts to us from God, but they're never meant to be God to us. Right? So what brings us joy? What brings us fulfillment is a relationship with God. That is what we were created to do we were created to worship God we were created to bring him glory and because of that there is nothing else in this world that will ever satisfy us completely happiness is the best that we can hope for from the things of this world right (laughs) so now that we understand that the things of this world won't satisfy us then we need to think about what we should be doing as the church and I felt like the best way to do that is to go throughout some of the epistles that we find in the New Testament. The epistles are just the letters that were written to the different churches that we learn about in the New Testament. And from these epistles, it informs us on how best we can worship the Lord and how best we can bring him glory. So we're going to take a look at these epistles for a while. I haven't decided how far into this that I want to go yet. Uh, but. I'm going to do it like I, I like to do, and we're going to go chronologically through some of these epistles. And that means that we're going to look first at 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Right? First and 2 Thessalonians comes uh, after like, the events that we see around chapter 17 in the book of Acts. In chapter 17, we see Paul and his traveling companion companions they enter into Thessalonica during the second missionary journey and this would probably have been around AD 49 and their entire time there was covered in 10 verses. They didn't spend a great deal of time uh, in Thessalonica because it was a very tumultuous visit to the city. right Th- Thessalonica had a very large Jewish population. It was so large that they were able to have their own synagogue. Uh, and as usual, upon their arrival, Paul goes into the synagogue to reason with the people there from the Scriptures that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This was a huge hurdle to the Jewish population. Right? In their mind, the Messiah was to come and be a liberator from their oppressors, not someone who died on a cross. The Messiah was supposed to be a conqueror. And he did come, and he did conquer, and he did liberate, but he liberated from enemies that they weren't expecting at first. He, he conquered sin and death. right? He liberated us from our slavery to sin and death, and they didn't understand that. And so what Paul would often do is he would go into these synagogues and he would explain, no, the Scriptures were very clear. The Messiah has to suffer. The Messiah has to die. Otherwise, we can't be back in right relationship with the Father. Because if the Messiah doesn't die, then there's no sacrifice for our sins. And so, to do this, Paul goes into the synagogue there for three weeks. And we are told in Acts 17 that some were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas. And it said that that this included a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a large number of the leading women of the city. So it's predominantly a Gentile congregation. And when the Jews saw the success that Paul and Silas were having, they became jealous. They went out into the crowd. They grabbed up a lot of wicked people. They formed a mob, and they started a riot in the city. They, they brought some of the people who had been aiding Paul and Silas before the city officials. They declared that the Christians were turning the world upside down and they had came to Thessalonica to do the same thing. Right, The, the charges that they were bringing against them were that these men are declaring that there is another king other than Caesar and they're saying that this king is Jesus. And this this. Would rub them the wrong way for two reasons. Number one, it's sedition. You're you're going against the king, and two, they often many of them uh, celebrated emperor worship, so they believed that Caesar was God. And so you've got you know you've got a political issue here, and you have a religious issue here, and so that's what they brought them uh, before them with their charges. And the city officials were upset, and what they did is they took a security deposit, essentially, from the people that they had brought before them. And they, they said, you know, if Paul and Silas don't leave, we're going to take all of your wealth. And so what that made them do is Paul and Silas left the city as soon as it became night that very same day, and they moved on to Berea. And that's it. That's all we know about Paul's trip to Thessalonica. But what we see in the book of first and second books of First and Second Thessalonians is that a seed was planted during that time. And the church planters moved on to continue spreading the gospel, but we see that that seed sprouted up into a church. As a result of the efforts of Paul and Silas, there was a new congregation of Christian believers that were formed in Thessalonica. Most of those believers are Gentiles instead of Jews, uh, and they all come from pagan backgrounds. Right? So they don't know how to behave as followers of Christ. Right, it, It's not like what we have now where you know, if you come to faith in Christ in America, typically you're going to have some understanding of what that looks like. Maybe not exactly what it means, but you're going to have some understanding of what it looks like, or at least you would have in years past. We're getting to the point where that might not be the case now, but that is what we would have seen probably 50 to Maybe even two decades ago, we would, you would know what it means to be a, a Christian, at least a little bit. But these people are coming from completely pagan backgrounds. They have no understanding. This is brand new to all of them. And so they're struggling with old habits. They are struggling with the new Christian ideas. How do I live in a way that brings God worship and glory and they're experiencing persecution from the non-Christians around them in their city. And this is what motivates Paul to write this letter to the Thessalonians. It's probably written a few years after this, maybe two or three years after it, in A.D. 50 or 51, while Paul was in Corinth, and the second letter probably came shortly after the first letter. Uh, so we're going to study both of these back to back. So that's the, that's the reasoning behind going into first and second Thessalonians and I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna jump right into chapter one let's pray together father as we open your word I pray that we have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to learn all that you have for us here I pray that we would be mindful of the struggle that the Thessalonians would have gone through as they converted from their pagan backgrounds into worship of you and I pray that we would be mindful that we struggle with similar things even today And, Lord, as we study this, I pray that you would change our hearts, help us to conform our lives to the beauty of your word. It's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen. All righty. Follow along with me as I read 1 Thessalonians 1, 10 verses. It says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always thank God for you, all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall, in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance. You know how we lived among you for your benefit. And you yourselves became imitators of us and the Lord, when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So what we see here in the very beginning of this chapter, we have a fairly typical introduction to these letters from the Apostle Paul. Uh, he begins by introducing himself and his traveling companions. Right? We see there Silvanus, which is Silas. Okay, So um, don't get confused. This is Silas. He's still traveling with Silas. Some translations say Silas there, and he's traveling with Timothy. Um, Paul says there, he begins by saying that he always gives thanks for the church in Thessalonica. Right, so those of us who have a proper understanding of the human condition, how people are apart from Christ, should be saying prayers of thanksgiving for those who have come to faith. Right? It's, it's a miracle that we have come from death to life. And it's a miracle that God has shown us the love that He has. He's given us the grace and mercy that He has so that we can come to faith in Christ so that we can be saved from our sins. And when we see the people in this room, it should motivate us to to offer up prayers of thanksgiving. There's nothing in us that deserves this salvation. There's nothing in us that deserves to be a part of the kingdom of God and yet God offers us this gift and we those of us who have accepted it we have we should be thankful for that and we should be thankful to God for everyone else who has accepted that free gift from him. So my question to you though is do you pray these types of prayers for this church? Paul often, in just about every introduction, he talks about his prayers for the church. And are you one who prays for this church? Are you one who gives thanks for the people here? Are you one who is praying for the betterment of the church and that more people would come, that more people would hear the good news of the gospel in this community, that more people would come to faith? How often do you pray for the church? And, And we often have the prayer requests that often come before the church or our physical ills that we have. Right. That's pretty common. Right. We often joke that our, our prayer list sounds like an organ recital. Right. We recite all the organs that are failing. Right. So but Paul often is not praying for the physical ills of of the church. He's praying for the spiritual condition of the church. He's given thanks to God for all that he has done in and through the church. And that's how our prayers should be for the church. Do you also pray for believers in other places? Right? Sometimes we can look at other churches and we can feel a, a sense of, uh, I don't know, what word am I looking for here? Like competition. Right? We look at other churches and we see what they have and we think, hey, I kind of want that. And we may look at them as someone that we should be in opposition to. We've got a huge church that's getting ready to be built right up here on the corner uh, that is going to be massive. They're probably going to have two or 300 people on day one. And we can look at that and we might be a little bit nervous. What does that mean for our church? It means absolutely nothing. It means that the kingdom of God is, is going forth and we should be praying for their success. We are not in opposition to that church. Paul did not see the church in Thessalonica as any kind of competition. We're all working towards the same goal. So we should be praying for the people of this church. We should be praying for the people in other churches that we would see the kingdom of God go forth, made much of, and that we would see many people coming to faith. And we should work together as well as we can to make sure that that's happening. Paul's praying for this church. Part of their prayers for the Thessalonians is for the work that their faith has produced. So they came to faith and what did they do? They got to work. Right? The desire to do that work is produced by their faith. Right? This is one of the true signs of salvation. Right? This desire to work for the kingdom of God. We are not saved by our work. The Thessalonians were not saved by their work, but their salvation leads them to put that work into place so that more people will be saved from their sins by putting their faith in the atoning work of Jesus. Right? When we come to faith in Christ, that doesn't mean that we've done all that needed to be done. That's just the beginning. Right, there is a ton of work that never ends. Like You do not get to tap out of the work of the kingdom of God. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how many years of work that you've put into the church. I don't care how much time you put into you know, earning your retirement. You don't get to retire from the work of the kingdom of God. These people are putting in their work. What motivates them to do this work? Paul says that it is their love of people that have motivated them for their efforts for the kingdom of God. Right, so, so they love the people around them. They, again, understand the human condition. They understand that their family and friends, their coworkers, are far from God. And because they understand what that means for them and because they have love for them, they strive to make sure that they hear the gospel. We can't convert anyone, but we should be doing our very best to place the gospel in front of them at every opportunity. And one of the things that I wanted to mention today was before I came here, uh, Sarah Reigns. Some of you know Sarah and some of you haven't had the privilege because she hasn't been able to come back since COVID hit. Um, but she said she called and she wanted to offer you. Uh, a New Year's resolution. If you hadn't come up with a New Year's resolution, she wanted to offer one for you. And that was to uh, witness to one person every single day this year. And that can seem like a tall order. But what if you just witnessed to some a few people throughout the year? Uh, maybe it's not one person every single day. If you can do that, you should. But maybe that's not it. Maybe it's one or two people that you know are in your circle that don't have faith in the Lord. And that you're going to show them how much you love them by putting the gospel around them. And I'm not talking about beating them over the head with it. You don't have to have, that doesn't have to be the only conversation that you have with these people. But it should be in some of the conversations that you have with people, right? They should hear that coming from you. They should see the way that you live and the way that you purposely put that before them. And they'll understand that you love them for that. Right. We love people the way that it when we love people the way that we're supposed to, we will work for their good. Right? Sometimes that's physical work. Right? That's taking you know, we hear about taking care of the orphans and the widows. We take care of those who need us. Sometimes that's spiritual work, like discipling immature believers or evangelizing our non-Christian brothers and our brothers and sisters, family members. Um, whoever that might be. Sometimes it's emotional work where we understand that there are people who are struggling with life. And we offer up uh, a shoulder to cry on. We offer up a listening ear. We do what we can to help remove the burden from their life. This is how we show people that we love them. And our work is determined by the needs of those things around us. So my work's not going to look the same as your work. Right? You've got different people around you. God specifically put those people around you so that you could do that work. Your work will look different than mine. But we all have work to do. The Thessalonians were doing this work out of their faith. If we love the Lord, we will work for the good of the people around us. Right? Being a Christian does not mean that we get to sit back and, and believe that all, everything is done. Coming to faith is just the beginning. One other thing that is certain that Paul points out here is that this work is difficult. Right? Paul says that he recalls before the Lord the endurance with which the Thessalonians do their work. Right? No one is going to claim that the work of the kingdom of God is easy. Right? It is a battle. It's often thankless. It's often fruitless. Right? Jesus made it very clear in the gospel of Matthew that, you know, the Many will hear, but few will come. And so we don't often see a ton of uh, fruit from this work. And it's often uh, in direct opposition by those who do not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have an enemy that is actively working against us and he uses the people that are in our lives to, to push back against the kingdom of God. It says that the people of Thessalonica they endured in their work because of the hope that they had in Jesus right what what hope do they have in Christ what hope are they they clinging to well there is an assurance that there will be fruit in their labor like we don't necessarily see a ton of fruit but we can guarantee that if we work for the kingdom of God things will happen we may not understand it we may not even get to see it but we can be promised that People from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be worshiping before the throne of God. We see that in the book of Revelation. So, that, so we know for a fact, that is one of the promises of God, that as the gospel goes forth, people will respond. And it's not up to us who is going to respond, but it is up to us to present it to everyone that we can. Right? They have assurance that the suffering that they're experiencing isn't worth the glory that awaits all those who labor in the faith to the end. Right? The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that we are going to experience hardship. We're going to experience difficulties and we can guarantee that everything that's coming to us is so much better than what's happening to us. Right, Maybe not in this life, but in the next. We have guaranteed treasures that are going to be beyond our wildest imagination. And I've told you numerous times, I can't even fathom what that might be. Right? To me, being in heaven is about being in the presence of Christ. I don't understand what, what other treasures there could be other than that. I mean, does that mean I get more face-to-face time with Jesus? Is that what that, because I mean, I'm working for that. I'm willing to endure for that. I don't understand what the treasures are, but we are promised that those treasures are greater than any suffering that we experience in this life. And we have hope in that the same way that the Thessalonians did. They have assurance. They have hope that Jesus is with them in all of this. Jesus sees the hard things that they're going through jesus understands he experienced all the things that they are struggling with and we have a promise that all the persecution that they are experiencing jesus is with them and none of it is in vain it's worth it it's worth it to go through the hard things for the kingdom of god number one it's shaping them in the image of christ I've used the illustration of sandpaper on wood before. And, you know, sandpaper doesn't feel good. If you've ever sanded your finger, you, you get that. It's, it's not pleasant. And I'm sure if the wood could speak, it would say, ow. But we can use that sandpaper to shape the wood into the form that we want it to be. And that's the same thing that God does with the difficulties of our life. He uses it as sandpaper to shape us in the image of Christ. And we are also promised that one day God will vindicate all of us before our enemies. None of this stuff is happening in secret. God is taking account of every single struggle that we have when people are actively working against the church. So nothing is being missed by the Lord. God's enemies will eventually experience His wrath for what they have done to... to, his people and are fighting against his name. Right? So none of this is being missed and they can have hope in that. And that, that means that they don't have to be the ones to seek their own vindication. right? When Jesus says to pray for your enemies, right? when Jesus says that vengeance belongs to the Lord, right? we don't have to do that and we can have hope knowing that none of it is going astray. It's the same hope that should motivate us Not to give up as we strive to reach the lost around us. Right? The same hope should push us to do good for our enemies, to love them the way that Christ loved them, to pray for their salvation, to pray that the Lord would forgive them for what they're doing, because they don't fully understand what's going on. We need to remember that we're not battling against flesh and blood, but we're battling against the forces of evil. All right, those people are not our enemy. They are people that need our prayers. So these are the hopes that the Thessalonians are clinging to while they're struggling, and Paul is remembering this in prayers. And after stating that he prays for the church in Thessalonica, Paul then says in verses 4-6 to that he knows that the church there has been chosen by God because the power of the Holy Spirit changed their hearts and brought them from death to life. And what he's pointing out here is that the Thessalonians had no power of their own to save themselves. The only way that salvation is possible is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He destroyed the power of sin and death through his finished work on the cross. And now the good news of that is spread through the preaching and teaching of God's word. The Holy Spirit uses that taught word to change our heart, so that we are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. We move from death to life in His power. And it's not anything that we do of our own. There's nothing that we can do. We have no ability to earn that salvation, uh, and we have no idea that we need salvation until the Holy Spirit removes the veil from our eyes and changes our heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. All of that is, comes from the power of God. But once we have seen the truth, once we have come to faith in Jesus, we can be assured that our salvation removes all condemnation from our lives. And when we put our faith in Jesus, the Father no longer sees us. He no longer sees Chris, the sinner. Chris, the person who gets frustrated with his kids. Chris, the the dude that struggles with road rage like you would not believe. He doesn't see any of that anymore. When he looks at me, he sees Christ. He sees the righteousness of his son. And we have become co-heirs with Jesus, and that is awesome. Paul then talks about how they lived while they were there, and how the Thessalonians watched them, right? They had no examples to to base their life on. So they watched them while they were there and they imitated Paul and Silas and Timothy as Paul and Silas and Timothy imitated Christ. So they have a ton of people that want to see them fall. They have a ton of people that want to see them fail. The Jews are coming against them. Their own people are coming against them. And yet they welcomed the message of joy from the Holy Spirit. The difficulty is there, and and no one is diminishing that struggle. And yet, because of their relationship with the Lord, they could have joy in the midst of all of that struggle. And because of their work and their endurance, they have become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul says the word of the Lord has been ringing out from them everywhere that they have gone. Even though they have experienced these difficulties, that has not stopped them from proclaiming this message everywhere they go. And they say he says that believers in Macedonia and Achaia have been coming to faith because of this message. And therefore, it says Paul doesn't need to say anything because everyone around them has been reporting the work that they've been doing. Why they have taken this message of good news seriously. They understand the, the, what's coming for those who are opposed to the Lord and they have gone out from amongst themselves and they are sharing that message every chance they get. And lives are changing. It says that people have, they, people have seen how they have turned away from idols to serve the living God. When we're talking about idols, oftentimes we think about these little images that people erect in their homes or in, in temples and they go before that and they worship that as though it is God, but we need to understand that idols are anything that take the place of God in our lives. Right? They may have turned away from the worship of this little God that they would have to feed or have to move, say prayers to or whatever, but for us... Conquering the idols in our lives might look like we, we step down from what, think, thinking too highly about what other people think of us, right? The fear of man might be an idol for us. We want to look good in everyone's eyes, and so we worship that, and we change ourselves. But for every single person that we talk to, every person that we're around, we want to make sure this person's not saying anything bad about us. We're not saying, you know, that we don't want them to, we want them to like us, and that becomes an idol for us. It could be work, our job. Right? Our ability to make this amount of money becomes an idol for us. Power and prestige can become an idol for us. Our family can become an idol for us. Right, When we begin to worship family more than we worship the Lord, right? anything that takes the place of God in our lives can be an idol. And these people are known for stepping away from these idols. They're stepping away from the idols and they're serving the Lord. They realize that that thing that they have been praying to has no power at all. And if you really think about it, whatever it is that you worship, that you and we all have an inclination to worship something. We're either worshiping the Lord or we're worshiping an idol of some kind. And you will find that there is no power for you in the opinions of other people. There's no power for you in that job. There's no power for you in your family. Right? The only power that we have comes from that relationship with the Lord. And one of the marks of our faith is what we are willing to leave behind at the beckoning of Christ. Right? Sometimes our lives significantly change when we come to faith. There are people all over the world that when they come to faith, they are giving up their livelihood, they're giving up their family, they may be giving up their life. But they are willing to do it because they see the truth in the gospel. They see what Christ is actually worth. And sometimes we are called to do things like that. We may be called to pick up all of our stuff and move. I know some friends that are on their way to the Middle East. A bunch of blonde haired blue eyed, people heading to the Middle East like they're going to stand out like a sore thumb but yet God has called them to that place they're leaving behind a relatively easy life here and they're going to do hard hard work in the Middle East sometimes God calls us to that sometimes God calls us to step down from this position or to move away from family and friends one thing that he always calls us to do is to be on mission for him and that can often be scary and difficult for us but we must be willing to leave behind our comfort. We must be, and that's my biggest idol. I'm gonna be honest with you, that and my family. My, I I idolize comfort. That's the one reason why I rage so much on the road is because those people around me are making me uncomfortable. right, that's one of the reasons why I might lose my cool with my family is because they have begun to make me uncomfortable. It's one of the biggest things that I struggle with, but I have to be willing to lay down that idol of comfort in order to honor God in the efforts that I put forth. God is calling you to do the very same. What might he be telling you to lay down as you are in pursuit of him? Lastly, the, another thing that's been spoken about in the church in Thessalonica is how they are waiting for the second advent of Jesus, who the father raised from the dead. Right. It says this at the very tail end. They're, they're awaiting, and this actually becomes a problem for them. We'll, we'll talk about this later. Um, but they're waiting for this second coming of Christ. We have a promise in Scripture that Christ will return someday. Right? We should trust in that, even if it seems delayed. Right? They, they were putting their trust in that. And we should live as though it's coming, even if it costs us everything in this life. It seems foolish to some people for us to live the lives that we live. It seems foolish for us to sacrifice some of our hard-earned money so that the kingdom of God can go forth. It seems ridiculous that we would give up one of our days off to come together with the church, spend time worshiping the Lord. Why would you get up early to do that? Why would you sacrifice your time for widows and orphans? Why would you do that? it seems foolish we we do it because we know that Christ is going to return and when he returns it's game over they were waiting on that that was one of the marks of their church and so we need to be waiting for that as well which brings me to some of our applications uh... for this there's so many things there's three or four other things that i could have picked from this passage to speak specifically about um, in our application time but the first thing that I want to encourage you to do is to turn from your idols. Think about the things that occupy the most of your thought, the most of your money, and the most of your time. If you can can honestly think about those three things I can pretty accurately point out your idol. Because you're going to spend the most amount of your time pursuing that thing which you love the most, right? And you will spend your time and your money for those things. So if you, if you honestly gauge your thoughts, you look at your checkbook and you look at uh, a checkbook is one of these things that they had before cards came out. Um, sorry, bank account. Let me look at your bank account um, and look at your calendar and if you put those three things together you can almost assuredly see what it is that you idolize and you have to turn from those things none of those things is greater than the Lord and they shouldn't take a greater position in your life than God does God should come first in all things your pursuit of him and the pursuit of the kingdom of God should take priority in every aspect of your life what are your idols learn them and turn from them the second thing is to serve the living and true God whatever promises those idols offer you are false there is no lasting joy in any of those things they're easily lost But one thing that cannot ever be taken away from us is the treasure in heaven that we get by serving the living and true God. And so what are you willing to give up to pursue this service to the Lord? And you need to be mindful of that and you need to be pursuing that. There is always work to be done for the kingdom of God. And we need people to get in the game. So be willing to serve the living and true God. And number three, wait patiently for the Lord. That's going to look different for everyone in here. Right, as we wait, there are certain things that I'm struggling with that are different than the things that you're struggling with. You might have that one person at work that I swear if they don't back off, it, the wrath is coming. Wait patiently on the Lord. The Lord sees it all. The Lord knows what you're struggling with. Maybe you're here today and you're struggling with chronic pain. I know what that's like. And there are days when I'm like, oh, if it doesn't, if I'm, if it doesn't end, I don't know what this is going to look like. Wait patiently on the Lord. One day, this body will be renewed and restored and there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin, no more struggle. Wait patiently on the Lord. Maybe there's something going on in your life and you, is, there's just this huge question mark that's hanging over your life and you don't know what to do with it. Wait patiently on the Lord. We have this promise that He is with us and that he is coming again, you are not on your own. You have not been left to suffer on your own. Number one, God is always with you, and God has given you us to be there for you. Let us do that. All right, when I ask you for prayer requests, listen, I will pray for your toe. I will. I will. But that's not my biggest concern for you. My biggest concern for you is how you are doing spiritually. My biggest concern for you is how you are being affected for the kingdom of God. And that's what I want to pray for. I want to pray for the person that you evangelized to last week. I want to pray for you because you are struggling to trust that the promises of God are true. And Pastor, will you please pray with me about that? Absolutely. I will pray for your ingrown toenail. I will. But that's not what I want to pray for you about. And that's not what I want you to be the first thing that comes to your mind when you're around the people in this room. I want spiritual things to be on your mind. I want kingdom things to be on your mind. And I want us to build relationships. That's one of the main reasons why we're launching this men's group. And the reason why we're reinstituting the women's group is so that we can be in relationship together. We can have actual life on life together. So whatever that struggle is, know that the Lord is with you, that the church is here for you, and just wait patiently for God to do whatever God is going to do in the midst of all of that. Right? The seasons will come and go, but the advent of Christ is coming again. That is guaranteed. Let's pray together. Father, I'm encouraged by this list of positive things that Paul has to say to the Thessalonians. I pray that we would naturally do these things as well through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that we would pray for one another, that we would pray for the blessing of the church, that we would pray for the efforts uh, that we put forth. We would pray for the fruit Lord, I pray that we would be mindful of the endurance that is required to do this stuff and that we would be encouraging one another to stay in the game, to trust. Lord, I pray that any who are experiencing our version of persecution would be strong and realize that everything that we are going through is worth it. Lord, I pray that we, like the church in Thessalonica, would have a ringing bell that goes out from us as we take the gospel to to difficult places difficult family members difficult neighbors different difficult co-workers and that that bell would ring out and lord even if no one comes to faith because that is your work and not ours but people would know without a doubt that we love you and that we are here to serve you i ask all this in your son's precious name amen